0: And if the Freedom Democratic
1: Party is not seated now, I question America. I am confident that the Democratic Party will reunite on the basis of democratic principles and that together we will march towards a democratic victory in 1980.
0: I think the Democratic leadership understands that we need to bring those people into the party. We need to transform the party. We need to make the Democratic Party a Democratic Party with a small d. I think the future of the party is working class. And I think that what I represent, and and perhaps, you know, Senator Sanders, also Senator Warren, there's a lot of working class champions in the Democratic Party. And I do think that that's the future. Welcome to Talking Strategy, Making History. I'm Dick Flax, activist. Retired professor of sociology and a really old guy. And I'm Daraka Laramore-Hall, a slightly less old guy and also an activist and political strategist. And on this season on Talking Strategy, Making History, we're going to be talking about one of the big questions for progressive strategy here in the United States in what we're calling A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Democratic Party. Today, we've got a real uh, privilege, and that is uh, having a conversation with Jonathan Smucker. Jonathan is a very experienced, if still on the young side, uh, organizer. And uh, it is that work that he's doing, particularly now, that prompted us to reach out to him to see if we could learn a lot more about this work as we proceed. I, uh, Jonathan uh, is author of a book that... Um, has gotten a lot of attention and a lot of praise from people whose praise you want if you're a progressive activist. Uh, The name of the book is Hegemony How-To, and uh, it's really a deep-going critique and sort of guidebook for radical activists, uh, how to overcome some of the occupational hazards of being in the left wing of America. Uh, and at the same time uh, become a more functional, effective force in the world that we're living in. And I first met Jonathan because he was applying to graduate school in sociology after having done an enormous amount of very productive writing based on his work as an organizer, his experience in the Occupy movement. He's applying to graduate school in sociology as if he has something to learn there rather than the other way around. But anyway, he applied to our department here in sociology, came out for a visit. We, At least I bonded with him, and I think uh, the feeling was sort of mutual. We had a lot of things to talk about, and there were several other times while he went to Berkeley rather than Santa Barbara. Big mistake from my point of view, but still that's what he did. And yet, after several years uh, in the graduate program at Berkeley, moving along productively, Jonathan and his uh, wife, Becca, decided to go back to their home ground, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That's my first question. Why did you leave the wonderful environment of Berkeley in the Bay Area and the Berkeley Sociology Department to go back to Lancaster, Pennsylvania? In 2016,
1: well, I, I didn't mean to leave the, uh, the sociology department. <laughs> that, that was a that was a, a, you know when we first moved. I was in in the middle of a uh, a research project, you know, working with Jihan Tuol at Berkeley, um, interviewing uh, Bernie supporters and Trump supporters. This was in, in uh, early 2016, but you know, intentionally, we we did move back while we were. You know, while I was still enrolled and then kind of uh, politics, the political situation caught me in a way that I ended up taking what was meant to be a two year professional leave uh, from my sociology program. And now is a four year uh, leave, but is coming to an end now. But I, I did have the intention of moving back. So did Becca. We're both from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. I grew up in in the county and I grew up conservative, working class, rural uh, very religious, very sheltered, and Becca grew up in the city, uh, a bit more more liberal. Uh, we both grew up Mennonites, a lot of Mennonite and Amish, in, in the area. But we knew we wanted to to move back to organize. Eventually, we weren't sure when. Um, and when I was done with my coursework and had you know funding in through a, a research program uh, set up in a way that allowed us to to move back earlier than we anticipated with the hope of eventually uh, engaging in organizing there. So I was in my grad program, I was also directing an organization called Beyond the Choir. We did a lot of strategy partnerships with organizations like Working Families Party and uh, we helped in 2015 and 2016, we were working with a emerging group called All of Us and we were working with the, the Sunrise Movement. It didn't exist yet, but it was in formation and what they call a DNA process. And uh, you know, we were working basically strategic advising. We were working with them and understanding the, the unfolding political realignment process that's underway and how political narrative works. So very practical tools in terms of uh, framing messaging, but with an understanding of the political realignment processes that are happening. I was doing that. Uh, Becca was actually very involved in the formation of the Sunrise Movement. She was working for 350 at the time. Uh, national organization. So we are both involved with national organizing, but we moved back home. We didn't really get involved in local stuff, even though we we knew we wanted to at some point. Um, We didn't know what that would look like. And and just let me say one more word about that before I say how we got involved in the local work. Uh, Part of our analysis was, you know, somebody like me, who grew up working class, rural, conservative, religious sheltered, uh, I am, you know, statistically unlikely to be <laughs> to have spent my life kind of submerged in the American left. But through kind of a series of accidents, I was politicized by racism at my high school and then uh, relatedly became interested in the global economy. And, you know, by the time I was 16, 17, was fully politicized and um, going to protest around the death penalty in Mumi Abu Jamal in Philadelphia when I was in high school um, and then started organizing at my high school and left home by the time I was 17. And, and you know, kind of didn't look back. Um, not really, though. I, I did look back a lot. And, you know, as I became submerged in and really submerged in the weak and fragmented American left that I found in the mid 90s, I found my home. I found, you know, community, belonging. I felt like I had found this beloved community that I longed for when I had become politicized in Lancaster, but didn't really have peers, let alone mentors. But I became really increasingly aware of the insularity and how we were talking to ourselves and critical of that, even though I, <laughs> I was as guilty as anybody of like, you know, radical signals and, and speaking this rhetoric, but I, I was aware of it too. And part of that I think is as somebody was raised in this rural conservative working class with this vocabulary, I had to translate so much of what I believed. So I, over time, you know, became uh, critical of that and wanting to figure out how that insularity had emerged and whether it was worse, you know, in in the left that I discovered than at other times historically. So I began kind of this inquiry into that. And that's what eventually gave me the conviction, I have to move back home, um, you know, because people like me who leave in the middle of Pennsylvania, you know, between not Philadelphia, not Pittsburgh, but the the area between, um, we usually don't come back. And that's part of, I don't like the term, but, you know, the brain drain, which is one of the factors with deindustrialization, globalization, um, the Reagan backlash, you know, a number of factors that have taken a state like Pennsylvania, where in these areas in between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia... Progressives used to really have a foothold and used to uh, be organized, and even a majority some places, not Lancaster, but other places. And there's been a steady bleed for decades now, um, not just of the Democratic Party, but of progressive organizing. And I felt like it was going to take people like me and Becca, my wife, who had acquired these organizing skills to go back and start contesting these areas again. So that that was the real reason. And then when Trump was elected, suddenly we went into high gear just pretty much overnight. And Trump uh, had carried your area? Oh, yeah. And our area is likely to continue to be carried for some time by Republican candidates, especially our congressional district right now. But we've changed that dramatically over the past four years. We've really right. uh, made a difference. But yeah, Trump won the area, and he won it again this year but we did gain uh, significant ground, significant vote share.
0: Your focus in the book and in your work is strategic in the same way that we in this podcast are calling ourselves Talking Strategy. Uh, That's part of our title. It's very much in the same spirit of what we're trying to accomplish in these conversations so that's a real connection emotionally and intellectually that we have. So you decide you're going to organize locally, but what I think we'd like to do is get into... Let's say the nitty gritty of what that meant. What was it that you thought you could be doing, and what did you begin to implement?
1: Yeah, and also, I meant to say at the beginning of the first question that uh, thanks for having me on. And the affinity was definitely uh, both ways. When I read your book and read your articles, I was so excited to talk with you and was excited at the prospect of studying with you. And so, Short of, of of factors that led us to the Bay Area, um, I'm really happy to be talking with you again. Um, so what did we think we could accomplish? Well, I had done a little bit of a practice run. I moved back for a couple of years um, back at the start of the Iraq War and had done organizing and built up uh, the Lancaster Coalition for Peace and Justice with some other folks. And that wasn't as popular a moment as <laughs> As the moment we've been in for the past four years, nowhere close, but it showed me that a lot more was possible in these areas than what most people thought. People really write off these areas. Democrats, radicals, like all sorts of people on the left really write off these areas. And so I had had a taste of that. And I've been organizing in lots of different formations national moments like Occupy Wall Street and like the global justice movement, but then just community organizing. Um, on lots of issues over the years. And you know basically, some of us had formed, you might call it a political tendency over the past few years. and that includes some of the early leadership of the Sunrise movement, this group, all of us, some of which now are senior leaders at Justice Democrats, um, and some other folks where we were just looking at the moment we're in and had an analysis that basically, there was emerging popular rebellion against the whole political leadership of the country, and that we were living in what amounts to a crisis of legitimacy, that uh, or a crisis of authority, where political authority had lost, you know, credibility with a critical threshold of the population, and you know, in our book, that threshold was probably crossed somewhere in the second half of the George W. Bush administration. But a feature of these crises of authority is that the political class is is usually the last to get the memo, because part of the reason you enter a crisis is because the political class becomes so insular, right? They've become, because of the crisis of inequality that is just the underlying crisis in our society, the people at the top are are cut off increasingly from everyday working people. And that's not just on the right. In fact, the right, in some ways... (laughs) has gotten better than the left at this faux populist language that's supposed to connect with everyday working people, right? Even though the substance of it is totally terrible. But the Democrat, you look at the left, not just the Democratic Party, but also the leadership of a lot of movements and nonprofit organizations has become functionally kind of, not the 1% often, some of it is, right? But like the top 10%, people with educational privilege in a time where over 40 years the top ten percent has become more and more cut off from the bottom eighty to ninety percent. So that's kind of the way we saw the world, and that in a crisis of authority, what happens is there's room for challengers to emerge and to, you know basically the populist rhetoric structure of speak, articulate the people and the interests of the people as opposed to the corrupt establishment and the elites. So we saw this coming and saw, the Tea Party as, you know, in some ways Obama, I think people miss this about Obama, (laughs) that Obama's campaign in some ways was the first wave of that insurgency in terms of how he campaigned against George W. Bush, and particularly with the Iraq War and disillusionment over it. Uh, But then, you know, unfortunately for a lot of (laughs) the world, Obama then, you know, immediately went to govern from the center and to try to kind of ingratiate himself to the power players. Um, I think that was the Achilles heel of his administration, right? But then the Tea Party comes as the movement form on the right, and then Occupy Wall Street, and then in 2016 you really have the campaigns of Donald Trump on the one hand and Bernie Sanders on the other hand, as you know articulating new premises that are diametrically opposed, right? When you're in the political establishment, they look a lot alike. You're like, oh, Bernie and Trump. They're like, you know, they're both these aggressive, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, they look a lot alike because both are a challenge to the establishments of different parties, but they mean so much different things. So that is our theoretical background that we had. And we believed that we could, you know, there was a lot of tactical know-how involved in that too. It wasn't just theory. We knew how to organize people. We knew how to plug people in. We knew how to do all that stuff. So we kind of had a DNA of how to organize locally. Um, ready to go. And when Trump won, we set it into motion. You know, a couple of us who were polished organizers reached out to other leaders in the community that might not have had political organizing experience, but were recognized leaders, and we built up a leadership team. And and we launched, and yeah, I, that sorry, that was probably a little bit more long-winded theory than what you were asking for.
0: Well, let's get a little more uh, even nitty-grittier. In that you identify leaders, you say they're not necessarily political leaders. How would you summarize what that means?
1: Well, we knew the community, and like I said, I moved back for a time back in like two thousand three to two thousand five. And so we had some relationships in the community. Um, some were leaders, as in people like Jess King, who later then ran for office. Who you know ran a nonprofit that helped working class people to start small businesses. Right? Um, there were clergy members that we reached out to, and then there were there were leaders in the sense of uh, people that we knew knew how to do tactical stuff <laughs> back from when we were organizing with the Lancaster Coalition for Peace and Justice. They had experience in that kind of activism. So those are the folks we reached out to. We called for an emergency community meeting, and my organization, Beyond the Choir, actually wrote a guide right after the election for how to do this kind of emergency community meeting. We worked with Working Families Party, and then other organizations like Move On adopted that model. And it was kind of like a pre-indivisible guide, where a lot of groups called for these emergency community meetings all over the country, and some of those became the groups later that carried out uh, ongoing work, and we used kind of that guide too. So. We got 300 people at that first meeting, which for Lancaster at that time was like mind blowing for people, 400 at the next 500 at the next. And soon we were turning out thousands, literally thousands for one, two, 3000 was the most we've ever turned out. Um, But if you know Lancaster County, that's like unheard of numbers. And that was for like the Muslim ban and um, and things like that. When Charlottesville happened, we we turned out a thousand people with 18 hours notice. What
0: was the message that turned them out? What were they being called to respond to?
1: Yeah, you know, this is a mix of tactical decisions, right? And so part of the message is that in addition to sociology, I've studied cognition. And really, you know, that's a lot of my experience in addition to organizing is communications work in movements. And so part of what you have to do is people have all these negative stereotypes around what is activism? What is politics? Activism and politics are scary. To people or unfamiliar, let's say, Um, they haven't experienced it. And there's all these stereotypes and the right has built these stereotypes. The culture has built stereotypes where, you know, an activist is somebody unlike me. I don't people caring about an issue and them getting involved in that issue in between the person caring about the issue and their involvement is this roadblock that is a caricature of what an activist is. So some of this was just about communications then and reaching people in language that kind of disarmed them and that they could see themselves in. So we called it an emergency community meeting. So it it looked to people when they saw the flyer and they saw the Facebook event like, oh, this is people like me who, like me, feel really bewildered by this man winning this election. Um, and we knew that people were going to want to come together with people to make sense of what just happened. And so we framed it in terms of a popular community response. Uh, we used familiar language. It wasn't scary. And we said, we're going to have to figure this out together. And we used a familiar space, Southern Market, where you know city council uh, used to meet. And so everything about it projected this familiarity. And that combined with you know, some of the direct movers and shakers that we uh, recruited to recruit for this, I think that got 300 people there. And we've been careful about using that kind of language all throughout. And I don't think good comms and good messaging solves all your problems, but I think it's necessary. (laughs) If you don't have it, you've got bigger problems. And so it's kind of like one of those necessary but insufficient things. It was a big part of it. But then at that meeting, at that first meeting, we knew that we had to give people an experience. That felt good, um, that they found community with each other and they had some sense of, oh, we can make a difference together. You know, So we've kind of have this formula we've perfected for these mass meetings where people have time to talk with each other in small groups. But we also recognize that people want to understand the moment and one role of leadership is to help people make sense of the moment. And so, you know, we had different people stand at the front of the room and say, you know, ask the questions, not purport to have all the answers, wrestle with the things together. But I think one difference between us and some of the Indivisible chapters, not to be putting anybody down because Indivisible has done amazing things. It's really important. But we right away on day one said, look, we're committed to figuring this out together, to mitigating the damage of a Trump administration. but. We also know that we have to ask how somebody like him could have been elected. We have to ask ourselves hard questions. And we told a story about part of that was how everyday people were less and less involved. And that is no coincidence that in the same four decades when big money and Wall Street and corporations consolidated their grip on our political system were the same four decades where everyday people because of the attacks on unions, because of de-unionization, um, and just because of the rise of individualism and, and the, the decrease in political involvement, that that was not a coincidence. And we also talked specifically about the Democratic Party. We have to look at how the Democratic Party has failed to deliver for working people and has you know, failed to fight visibly and vocally for working people in this period when – you know, has been bleeding out working class uh, voters. We have to look at that. And we need better candidates who are visibly and vocally fighting for working people. If we're going to bring back these disaffected voters and attract new, younger voters, that's what we need. And we said that from day one. And, you know, definitely some of the kind of vote blue no matter who folks didn't like that we said that. But when they saw that we started getting results, they went along with it, too.
0: What I'm hearing is number one, the people you gather together are people who, in some way, were on the liberal side, if you will, of the community, uh, and therefore distressed about Trump specifically. That's the emergency. Secondly, it had an electoral purpose, not just uh, you know that was built into the uh, to the strategy.
1: So it's a little more complicated than that. In that uh-huh. we estimate that probably. 80% of the people who came to that first meeting, 80% of the people, and this is not scientific, this is our, our estimate from our knowledge of, of who was in that room uh, there wasn't like a formal survey but I think it's probably a pretty good estimate we're not involved politically before they walked in that room, uh-huh. before 2016 and some of them did not even vote before that, right uh-huh. and so I think even saying that people have liberal dispositions is more complicated than that There were a number of people who got involved earlier in 2016 through the Bernie campaign. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of people who did have that critique of the Democratic Party resonated with. And there were people who, um, so both protest and electoral involvement was really unfamiliar to most of the people in the room. And so we knew that we were going to have to Channel people into both of those things. But we knew that we had to kind of walk them through a pedagogical process as a community to get ready for that and to do that together. Um, And so, yes, there were a lot of liberal people there. There were a lot of true blue Democrat vote, blue no matter who people. And there was a real mix of working class and middle class people. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's definitely been one of the the organizing tensions for us over the past four years.
0: So, what did you decide to do? You said, Find candidates, but uh, what was the day to day that you were embarking on?
1: Well, for the first few months, it was just protest. It was one protest after another. We did the first sit-in of a congressman's office, Lloyd Smucker, my cousin, our congressman. <laughs> um, we, um, uh, you know, we had mass protests, and it was week after week after week. You know, we were turning people out. The Muslim ban, uh, stopping the healthcare repeal. Um, one thing after another, but we also had a leadership team. And I think this was key that was looking ahead, that was meeting regularly and that knew that this wave of protest, the cycle of protest would eventually peter itself out. Right. And so we were looking ahead for what is the next kind of thing that is going to orient people. And it was pretty clear to us that it would be the 2018 midterm elections. Mm -hmm. And we knew that we needed to do better in our district than the candidate who had run in 2016. So we recruited someone, we recruited Jess King to run, who was an incredible candidate and ran what may have been the biggest house race operation in the States uh, that year, uh, may have been. I, I can't I can't back that up, it was huge. I mean, it was like millions of door knocks, unheard of for this area. And unfortunately we would have won the district that we started with, which was an R plus six district. You know, people would say impossible to win. But we really got <laughs> the raw end of the deal when redistricting happened in the middle of the race, you know, March of 2018. You know, well into the race, we got redistricted to an R-plus-14 district that was really impossible to win. But nonetheless, you know, Jess, to her credit, stayed in the race, and we increased vote share. You know, huge, huge increase in vote share. Places like Efforto went from twenty percent to forty percent. Limits went from twenty-five to fifty percent. And Jess ran as a working-class mother who was an outsider and who criticized the Democratic Party, uh, but you know was also clear about her criticism of the Republican Party. You know, it's it's really too bad about redistricting because she would have been the past few years right there with the squad. But in a district that people say, oh, you can't win on that politics here. Mm -hmm. Um, And we really showed if you looked at the numbers, (laughs) um, you know, which unfortunately winning is everything. So people don't really look at the numbers after a race uh, that you've lost. Not many people do. Some people did. I mean, the Democratic Party definitely did. We turned a lot of heads.
0: And meanwhile, there were other races or other ways you could point to success.
1: Yeah, well, the next year, we flipped five borough councils in 2019, you know, and that was built upon the momentum and the volunteer apparatus and the leadership that we built up um, through the King campaign. You know, and a lot of this, Dick, was so different than I thought politics went before this time, because, you know, I was always a bit like, you build up slowly, partial to outsider social movements instead of electoral campaigns. But in retrospect, even though, you know... (laughs) If we knew we were starting with an R-plus-14 district, we probably wouldn't have recruited Jess to run. Jess probably would have said no, right? We probably wouldn't have done it. But then after having done it, it was absolutely the right thing to do because it was that level. It's kind of like the all politics is local thing has been inverted in the past few years. All politics is national. And we needed a huge focal point race to bring in you know, literally thousands of volunteers um, and Building on that, we built it into an apparatus that then helped to flip five borough councils in conservative Lancaster County. And we've continued to build in that along those lines. And we also won on some issue fights too um, at the same time. And that was one of our premises is that this chasm between electoral work and movement work that has kind of been there my whole life, you know, I'm almost 43 years old, that that was not serving us. It was not serving working people and that Trump's election And Bernie's candidacy in 2016 kind of really bridged that chasm in a way that is kind of incredible, where, you know, it seems like politics is just all cut from the same cloth now. Issue work, movement work, electoral. And we really leaned into that here.
0: So what would be an example of an issue campaign and how that was organized?
1: So um, here's one. Nothing like ones that we won, right? But uh, Geo Group um, tried to privatize the prison reentry system here. And it was a, I don't know how much, maybe half a million dollar contract. It was a done deal with the county commissioners. And the way that they organized the process, they made it so that, you know, basically only Geo Group would be eligible for the bid, the way that the county commissioners organized the bid. And so the nonprofits that existed that had been doing this work, they were upset about it, but they weren't used to political fights. They you know, that was outside of their experience. And so we worked with them and some other folks and, you know, organized people into a fight and basically got them to realize that like, while the County commissioners were against us on this, it wasn't their most important fight. If we could make them look bad, if we could expose them, if we could put some heat on them and some pressure, we could win this. And we did, we won it. We, we, we stopped the contract and we won. So fights like that also, We've done a lot with uh, supporting Black Lives Matter and criminal justice reform. There were incidences of police brutality here in Lancaster that we helped to amplify and to mobilize around. And that's ongoing. Um, there's like a commission on it. There's a lot of frustration, but it's you know something where at the very least right now, people have a political voice, uh, a public voice in this in a way that just did not exist four years ago. And a lot of the people who turned out for those things were white people, right? Yeah, but it was multiracial, and for sure. I mean, the police brutality stuff is usually majority people of color, Uh or at least 50-50. And so now we have Pennsylvania Stands Up, which is nine chapters like Lancaster Stands Up across the state and and growing. Um, And, you know, one of the things about these smaller cities is, you know, most of the places where we're organizing, Lancaster, Harrisburg, York, uh, Allentown— Coatesville, our majority people of color cities, the surrounding counties are a sea of white—not not entirely, but they're very majority white. But we're, you know, experimenting with a model of how do you organize political power on a countywide basis, where the city's majority people of color and the county is overwhelmingly white. How do you organize multiracial power and a base that is a mix of working class and middle class people? Um, And (laughs) that's hard. It's not easy. But uh, I think we've done some things right there. Um, I think we have held some of those bases together in pretty important ways and ways that have, have gotten results both on issues and electorally. So one more nitty gritty thing
0: to dig out some more about how this works on the ground. When you talk about canvassing is that focused on particular campaigns, or you know, we're hearing something about relational organizing or deep canvassing? Is that part of your methodology?
1: Yeah, we've done a lot of different kinds of canvassing over the past few years. We started with an experiment that was just a pretty open-ended um, "What's important to you?" listening canvas back in April, I think, is when we started. April of 2017 was our first canvas. We did voter registration with that too. Then we did a lot of canvassing for. Four candidates and then we've done listening uh kind of deep canvassing on issues you know so this past back in in 2019 and 2020 we did a partnership with people's action where we did this you know race class narrative stuff and um that's well, i just what is race class narrative stuff Referring, to. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's so it's a deeper listening canvas. You know, instead of just trying to sell people on a candidate or on a position on an issue, you're asking them questions about themselves, what they care about. Uh, it kind of takes as a premise that most people don't really have a clear, coherent politics. They have different narratives, different values, often which feel in conflict with each other. Right. So a lot of people might be sympathetic to a narrative of like immigrants are taking our jobs who might also be sympathetic to a narrative of Wall Street and big corporations are exploiting us and they're dividing us over our differences, whether it's our race or our country of origin in order to increase their profits, right? So the same people can be sympathetic to both of those things. Yes. And so we dig in and it's a matter of helping people sort out meaning in those narratives, but it involves listening. And so we did that formal canvas, but even from the beginning, that kind of listening element and persuasion and long-term relationship building was really baked into our canvases, right? Because we were not the Democratic Party trying to—and not I know some places the Democratic Party does this, right? But we weren't just trying to sell people on candidates. You know, we realized really early on from our first listening canvas— that the modal response at the door was political alienation, disaffection. Some version of politics isn't for me, some version of I don't really like either party. Maybe they didn't like the Republicans worse, right? (laughs) But they didn't like the Democrats either. Um, Some version of, you know, that's not me. And so rather than kind of be a cheerleader for a candidate or the Democratic party, which wasn't gonna land, we learned and we taught our volunteers meet that energy reflect back on your own ambivalence be like yeah i hear you you know like uh financial crisis happened no one was prosecuted you know uh no one was held accountable you know what's it going to take but then instead of just staying there you move into a story of you know and then i realized this isn't going to change unless people like you and me get involved and take action and once we had some wins and some things to show that became more compelling we could say to people you know um, you know, people like us who mobilized 2000 people to stop the Muslim ban, right. Who won against geo group. And you could give people some evidence of like, oh, I could be part of something because they're not going to change unless people like us take action. Um, and that's, so then what do you ask people to do? Well, sometimes the- vote this way. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. uh, you know, it's not a majority of people who are going to get involved as volunteers. Right. But we do, I mean, that is how we get a lot of our volunteers too, right? So you don't need everybody to. So part of it is persuasion. Part of it is moving neutral people into the kind of sympathetic. Um, and that could affect, you know, their voting behavior for sure. That's that's one of the, the key things that we want to do. And then some of it is moving the sympathetic people into active, you know, become a dues paying member, volunteer, etc.
0: So I want to move to the statewide organization follow-up to this, but Darak, you want to jump in on anything? Yeah, I've got got a couple of questions. Um, And thanks so much, Jonathan, for being here. This is all really rich and fascinating, Um, both your story as an activist, as well as this sort of on-the-ground snapshot of what's going on in the fight back in Trump country. It's really important and and underreported, so I just really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Thanks, friends, for listening to our conversation here on Talking Strategy, Making History with Jonathan Smucker. He's an extraordinary organizer, as you might be able to tell. He's the author of the widely discussed book called Hegemony How-To. He uh, will be back with us for a second part of this conversation not long from now. Meanwhile, if you haven't visited our website at patreon.com/slash tsmh, that's where you can support the podcast as well as link to it. And we're also available on all the usual podcast outlets. So thanks for now and we'll see you next time. Take to the streets now, this world's rearranged